0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, all right? And joining me, as always, for the miracle of satellite technology, hunted by men, sought by women, it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, (laughs) sir?
1: I'm good, thank you. Uh, that tagline is maybe the most generic we've ever had. Mm. It could apply to thousands of thousands of films. I'm going to guess it's about... It's the tagline for Oliver and Company.
0: No, no. I mean, you were close. <laughs> um, and when I heard this uh, um, tagline, I was like, really, that's what they went with? Because that's the, the tagline for The Third Man.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So, you know, not some kind of tawdry late night softcore erotica. Um <laughs> you know, it's it's actually a kind of a bona fide masterpiece. But you know, perhaps they didn't want to go too highbrow with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it was you know, it's it's kind of a noir, it's a thriller. Uh the type of entertainment made at that time seemed generally to be a little bit kind of classier than these days. So mm. maybe by everyone else's standard it was very tawdry. Mm. well you by probably our, by our uh, degenerate standards it's <laughs> uh it's a classy masterpiece mm.
0: what you didn't get from the reading of that tagline is that the uh hunted by men sought by women women is in is in all caps all caps with a big exclamation mark so like i probably didn't that didn't come across but that that makes it even less suitable to to that film We've been off for a couple of weeks. We've been, uh you've been kind of trotting, haven't you, Ed? And you were at the, the, in the London Podcast Festival last week?
1: I was, yeah. And we'll be, I'll be talking to my friend Zoe Jays about that next week. She organised the festival and very kindly let me know that it was happening so I could buy tickets and go along. Uh, and that was really fantastic. I saw some really, really great shows and it, I got to catch up with a lot of people I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, so that was wonderful. Uh, and then, even though you and I haven't recorded in a while, uh both because I wasn't uh in the country well actually we were in the same country, but, mm-hmm. but we didn't have our we didn't have our Skype connection set up. And one week you just fell asleep at least yeah. our record time. Yeah. Not um, my bad
0: everybody, that that actually did happen.
1: We actually have spent uh, a little bit of time together in person, which was really, really nice.
0: Yeah, we went to see the comedy bang bang live show, which was delightfully weird. Uh mm. and um something I'll never forget
1: yeah it was great seeing those guys it's fun seeing because because on the recordings Scott or Ockerman always seems very composed uh and in person he seems to be you know he he constantly seemed to be acting as if the show was on the verge of just spiraling into disaster I don't know how much of that is an act but certainly whenever John Gabrus was talking he seemed to be despairing of of the terrible and horrible things he was saying mm-hmm. in his uh, long Island accent. Uh, and obviously Paul F. Tonkins, who is the painter and saint of podcasting. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was amazing being in the same room as him and seeing him uh, just going kind to of be one of the most effortlessly hilarious people alive.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. And I believe they're still on tour. And if they are, go and see it because, you know, it's a great evening. There's been a lot happening in the world of film since uh, we last spoke. Uh, Let's get into some news and try and kind of uh, get to the bottom of some of this shit. One of the big things that caught my eye is the newest film adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express is gathering quite a cast, Uh, you could call it a stellar lineup. We've got Kenneth Branagh directing and playing uh, Poirot. Um, And then we've got a cast including Johnny Depp, uh, Dame Judi Dench, uh, Michael Pena, Daisy Ridley, Um, and uh, for Hamilton fans out there, Leslie Odom Jr. is going to be in it. So it looks like, uh, essentially, you've got a who's who of actors queuing up to stab Johnny Depp on a train.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, it fulfills one of my dreams, which is to see Johnny Depp horribly stabbed to death. Mm -hmm. But it also defers my other dream of him not working again, because he's a a terrible actor and a scumbag. So, I mean, it all comes out in the wash eventually, but, you know, there are enough people in that cast who i'm excited about seeing in a film together to kind of uh, and also there's the knowledge that Depp will be out the door apart from flashbacks uh in the first 20 minutes it's uh that's very encouraging
0: mm. his stock really has fallen hasn't it uh mm. i mean even in the, the lifespan of this show he's gone from someone who used to be even intact extremely watchable and, you know, we were longing for some kind of uh, Johnny Depp comeback uh, to now someone who is, you know, deplorable.
1: <laughs> yeah, a bucket of deplorables. plorables. Mm. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, I mean, yeah, because when we started, he'd just done the fourth Pirates movie. Mm. And I think that one, I think then everyone still was giving him the benefit of the doubt because they were like, oh you know he's doing these things because it's you know big payday and it's disney and they've obviously been very loyal to him and the, you know he's obviously kind of benefited him but then very quickly you're into like dark shadows and lone ranger which again like you know it's, it's not the worst film in the world it's not as bad as people think it is but you know not not the best use of his abilities um but yeah, I recently watched the movie Nick of Time with uh, Johnny Depp uh, kind of early in his career, 20, 21 years ago, because it was made in 1995. Wow. And uh, like it was very strange watching it and, being, and remembering, oh, I used to look forward to when Johnny Depp was in things. Like his his presence in a movie wasn't instantly a reason to be wary of it. Uh, and that's not the case so much these days.
0: Mm, yeah, he really has taken the low road um, to hackdom which is, you know, depressing given, you know, quite how many hits he's got in his CV. Uh, and I don't mean just commercially, just, you know, he was pretty fucking good. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, he was the most exciting actor of his generation for a while. And, uh, you know, people talk him being like a great physical comedian, one of the best kind of deadpans since Good Buster Keaton. And now it's just like, oh, that, that fucking hack. Mm. You know, that's you. it's been a very long time. I mean, maybe not since Mickey Rourke in the early 90s has someone fallen from being kind of an exciting presence to being someone who is is basically just the butt uh, butt of jokes.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. But that cast is pretty impressive. And and it was while speaking of uh, big ensemble casts um, and segues, one of the greatest shows on TV right now uh, is uh, FX's Fargo. Um, and they have announced the cast for their third season. Or um, well, It kind of continues to grow and grow uh, with each passing week. We know that it's going to be led by Ewan McGregor, who plays uh, two roles. He plays a, a kind of a set of brothers, I think. Um, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead was added, and now uh, everyone's favourite named actor, Scoot McNary, has joined the cast. Mm. Um, I'm excited about that. Are you, Ed?
1: I am very excited, yeah, particularly about um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's a great actress, Uh, she was fantastic in 10 Cloverfield Lane earlier this year. I've really been enjoying her work on CBS's Braindead, which is a show that uh, I'm not sure is going to be long for this world because it's super weird. I think I recommended this a little while ago. Mm. Uh, It's a super weird little show, but she's really, really great on it. And uh, yeah, and, and I think it'll be very exciting seeing what they do. Like she and Scoop McNary both feel like people who would fit very well into the cohen adjacent universe that uh noah hawley has created with that show
0: mm, yeah yeah if you haven't seen it um i think both seasons are on netflix now and they're kind of uh, not, is it anthology is that the right way to say it? each season is a completely different cast and different story but kind of same setting amelia
1: yeah basically uh they are anthology it's kind of in the same vein as your american horror stories except going a step further instead of having a a rep cast who come back every year to tell a different story. They have pretty much just every year they cast an entirely different... Same with True Detective, except the concept they've actually managed to make work. <laughs> uh, somehow.
0: Yeah, yeah. I realised that I say milieu on this podcast quite a lot. What a fucking ponce. What am I playing? I, I think I say it more. Do you?
1: But Yeah, but I think we both say it quite, quite a lot. I think it's the only French word that we both pronounce correctly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what it means. Uh, I just keep saying it because you did it. Moving on, uh, a bit of news about Duncan Jones. He um, has had a long gestating project called Mute. I don't really know a huge amount about it, but I think it's some kind of like technoir type affair. Um, And he's finally started shooting it this week and everyone was kind of super psyched because uh, Duncan Jones, whilst um, he has made one bona fide good film, uh, the rest of his output is fairly patchy. But what was interesting is it was announced about a week after we started shooting that it would be going onto Netflix. And I found that interesting for two reasons. One, you know, that's a fairly high profile release for Netflix to have nabbed. And two, I wonder why they announced it after we'd started filming it. Like, as in, was the deal done, uh, you know, after this happened? Which seems like a fairly odd way to do it. But then I've never known a film to be made on that scale and not have a distributor at the start. Um, or not have, you know, at least something set up. Um, But I wonder whether or not it was something to do with or a reflection on the success of Warcraft.
1: I mean, it's very possible, because obviously that film, we we discussed it a few weeks ago, well, a month ago or so now, uh, in that it was a film that did well in China, but that's probably not enough for it to actually make money. So, you know, it's probably not been the success that Universal wanted it to be. So... I mean, I don't know if he made that in order to fund Mute or if Mute was. I mean, no, I know Mute has been mooted uh, mm. as his follower, as his next film since at least Moon, mm. because he he cause that was like listed for a while, and then he did Source Code, and then got kind of uh, sucked into this whole Warcraft thingy. And I feel like, uh, yeah, it's it is very very strange the way that they they announced it. Maybe it was just that they were wanting to wait until they had footage in the can before ever getting everyone excited about it. Because, I mean, like, it's not uncommon for films to fall apart, like, even in the late stages of being made, and for something like this, where it's kind of a, a mid-budget sci-fi movie from a cult director that not that people are excited about but don't really know a huge amount about, uh, maybe it, they were just kind of waiting until they were 100% certain that it was actually a going concern.
0: Mm, mm, possibly. Um, speaking of like uh, long gestating projects uh, and films falling apart, did you see that um, the man who killed Don Quixote is delayed again?
1: Yeah, I did yeah. see that.
0: Mm, this is becoming a, like a more drawn-out thing than either the Gambit movie or um, the Crow uh, <laughs> resurrection.
1: Except people actually want to see the man who killed Don Quixote. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. We have had the news this week that two uh, kind of very important and you know super fun animated shows are going to come to an end uh, this week. They announced that both Archer and Adventure Time um, have kind of uh, you know put an end date on their on their fun.
1: Yeah, Archer. I think for a while it's kind of been tacitly known that Archer would be finishing after its tenth season, or at least. Adam Reed, who created the show, has says that they had ideas for at least ten seasons, mm-hmm. uh, which I think uh, could have been read as essentially saying, "Yeah, after ten years, we're probably ten seasons were probably done." Uh, and uh, Adventure Time, uh, you know, it's it's sad that it's ending after its ninth season, but also that show produces so many episodes per year, and they do stuff like mini series in between proper seasons and everything that it's still going to be something like a hundred episodes of television before they finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is crazy and amazing. So it's nice that they are. They will probably be able to go, both shows will go out on their own terms uh, and will both go out having, you know, been two of the best shows on television of having tremendous success. And Archer in particular, it's really amazing. The that, that show, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, how the basic premise of Archer of like, oh, an animated spy show where it's actually more of an office drama uh, or or kind of a workplace comedy that doesn't seem like something that should sustain itself. Mm. Uh, and it's to the credit of that show that they've kind of done all of these different reboots and, uh, and you know, different concepts, uh, including the most recent season ending on a cliffhanger, which I'm really still not sure how they're going to get out of. Um, but they've they've kept do- reinventing themselves and the show has managed to uh, really, uh, you know, remain fresh and exciting. And 10 years is a really, really great run for any show so uh, i'm not too broken up about it ending after 10 years
0: mm, yeah yeah and um yeah i mean apart from the arch of ice season which was more missed than hit um yeah. you know they've they've been a it's been a pretty solid output um for the seven or eight seasons it's gone so far so you know i
1: think this most recent one was seven so i think we've got the three seasons to go
0: uh, three to go, okay. So they can undo all that hard work uh, with, a, <laughs> with a duff season. The uninspiring news of the week, uh, which is one that completely passed me by, um, is that John Favreau is going to produce a kind of like CGI live-action hybrid version of The Lion King. Although, given that there's no humans in The Lion King, it's just going to be CGI, right?
1: Yeah, I should think so. Um, like I think people have been describing it as live-action. But unless... Like they're going to use one real lion cub, and everything else being CGI. Uh, I yeah, I'm not entirely sure how they would get away with it, uh, unless it's real, like African savannah and fake lions, uh, mm. which would be that that could be quite interesting. But I imagine it'll all it'll be on a soundstage in Burbank somewhere.
0: Mm, I'd imagine so. And and it's weird that this kind of news passed me by, but also. I kind of find it a really uninspiring announcement because, like yourself, Ed, I absolutely loved the Jungle Book that came out mm. earlier this year. That was like a super fun um, adaptation and, and kind of like reimagining, I guess, if you want to use, you know, a phrase de jour for me to use another French phrase there. Uh, and I kind of just thought, well, okay, maybe like John February is he gonna, is he going to become that guy?
1: Yeah, it seems to be that way, doesn't it? Like, for a while, it seemed like he was going to be the big superhero comic book adaptation guy because he did the two first two Iron Man movies and then uh, the Cowboys and Aliens, and then he took a step back and he did Chef, which seemed to be him kind of kicking back against all of that stuff and kind of working out his issues with the studio system, uh, and now he's just dived fully back into it and he seems to be uh, comfortable with, you know, making big movies on a huge budget uh, and you know more power to him if he's kind of found a niche that he's comfortable with and that he actually finds the work rewarding uh, which based on what happened in chef uh, I don't think he kind of did with cowboys and aliens uh, but yeah it's it's weird to see that that's where his F, his energies are going to be directed for the the the, the kind of the coming future uh, yeah and I'm just not sure how much scope there really is to adapt The Lion King in that way. Because, like, The Jungle Book, they changed a fair bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, In tone, it's very different to the original film, and like plot points are kind of wildly different as well in a lot of places. Um, In part, seemingly, so they could set up sequels. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it it kind of more or less worked. Uh, Whereas The Lion King's pretty straightforward, and, like, it's so well known that if you were to change it, it feels like people would kind of kick out more. And you wonder if this is going to be similar to, like, the Cinderella uh, version that uh, Kenneth Branagh did a few years ago or the kind of the forthcoming Beauty and the Beast, whether or not it's going to kind of be really slavish and make you wonder, okay, this looks really nice and it's kind of really impressive, but why? <laughs> just yeah, why? <laughs> just why?
0: Yeah, they're going to do this kind of a straight musical Um, And they're going to keep all the the hits in, you know, it's, I don't know, it doesn't feel like as long ago as, as any of the others, it doesn't really feel like as long ago as Cinderella or the Jungle Book to feel like it needs a reimagining. I mean, I suppose it depends what the, uh, the the reaction is to Beauty and the Beast, I guess, because that's like uh, 24.
1: Five years ago now? 20, 30 years ago? Is that right? 20, uh, 25, yeah. Came out in 91.
0: Yeah, yeah. 25 years ago. So we'll see, kind of, because that's still... You know, people can still remember seeing that in the cinema. Whereas if you saw Jungle Book in the cinema, you're probably like 100 years old or, or something.
1: I I think I have figured out the perfect way they could do it if they really wanted to anger everyone. Okay, sure. Keep the film exactly the same, but mm. remove all of the songs, but then add back in Morning Report the terrible musical number that they cut from the original movie and then added on the DVD, and which people only know because it's really bad.
0: What 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 is Morning Report? I don't know anything about
1: this. It's a song that Zazu sings to uh Mufasa and Simba at one point, just basically kind of saying, Oh, what's happening in the on the savannah this day? Uh and it's just really bad. It doesn't advance the plot at all. It's not catchy. It's just this song that takes up like two minutes of screen time and they rightly thought, maybe we should remove this and just have Simba tackle him. Mm. Uh, because, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's the song being badly written or that Rowan Atkinson, not the strongest singer. But yeah, it's like, if you ever watch it on the DVD, it's, it's one of those things where you think, yep, yeah, this was a correct choice. Yeah. <laughs> there was a It was a good idea for them not to mar this classic by including this song.
0: We will end the news section with uh, what appears to be a kind of an ongoing... Uh, Kind of in memoriam role every week. Kind of uh, two uh, kind of greats passed away this week, Uh, or in the last two weeks, we had the character actor Bill Nunn, um, who is one of those guys you know whose face you like recognize and everything, uh, even though you might not know his name, and also the director Curtis Hansen
1: Yes, director of certainly two films that we're very fond of on this show, uh, L.A. Confidential, one of the great films of the nineties. And Wonder Boys, one of the great films of the 2000s, and also uh, an inductee into the SRS Alternate 100. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a bunch of other really kind of interesting stuff uh, around that, you know, stuff like 8 Mile, which I really, really like and think is way better than kind of an Eminem vanity project should have been. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Her Shoes, which is a really, really good um, comedy. Uh, Really good showcase for Cameron Diaz and Tony Collette. Uh, What else? Uh, Hand the Rock's Cradle... River yeah. Wild
0: as well. I think he did. Mm-hmm. Even his kind of pulpier, kind of thrillery stuff was uh, was kind of eminently watchable.
1: Mm. And he's one of those people who came up with Roger Corman kind of early in his career. So even though he hadn't didn't establish kind of the strong or tourist stamp of a Scorsese or even a Jonathan Demme, who he kind of who his career kind of tracks along with quite closely, and that they both uh, kind of really came to real prominence in the 90s directing studio stuff that was really really kind of excellently assembled uh if not necessarily as idiosyncratic of their other work mm. uh, even though he didn't have kind of that aut- authorial stamp he's still kind of i always still associate him with all these people who came kind of came up at the same time through the new hollywood thing
0: mm, i seem to remember i said to you when we kind of found out about this that he Kind of reminds me of of that kind of old Hollywood style of of being a kind of a craftsman who can who can kind of comfortably tackle any genre and it, it might not be um, the most uh, kind of stylistically um, prominent work. You won't kind of pick it out of a lineup as being as by a particular person, but you mm. can do in terms of think looking at the quality that's being put into it. Uh, it reminds me of you know you know a Robert Wise or a you know a Howard Hawks, someone who who could, you know, handle any kind of genre just because they were a great storyteller.
1: Yeah, and he was also one of those people who, you know, his his career could probably be summed up in the fact that he directed LA Confidential and he won an Oscar for co-writing it, which I think is actually probably the hardest part of that movie, was uh, taking this incredibly ungainly, long, sprawling novel that includes, like, an alternate, twisted version of Disney World and uh, like a, a serial killer plot that goes back 30 years and trying to say, okay, what's the what's kind of the central thing of this? Okay, it's the triumvirate of cops working together on a case. Let's streamline it. Let's make it something that's filmable. <laughs> uh, and like the job that he and uh, I think Brian Helgeland, I think may have been the other. It was him, yeah. Uh, the job they did kind of pairing that down and but whilst retaining kind of the sweaty, febrile kind of quality of James Elroy's writing uh, is actually, I think, I think kind of astonishing and as good as the director is, I think uh, his writing on that film uh, is, is really impressive as well.
0: Mm, absolutely. And Bill Nunn, um, like I say, one of those faces, I mean, you, you probably like kind of remember him as uh, someone who worked with Spike Lee a lot, most kind of popularly in, uh do the right thing. He played Radio Raheem um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of famously and, uh, for me, he'll always be um, in uh, things like *The Last Seduction* uh, and uh, *Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead*. Those kind of um, kind of midnight movie type things I used to see in the '90s. That kind of it was just like one of those one of those character actors, like Philip Seymour Hoffman or um, kind of Parker Posey, that you see crop up in everything in the '90s, and mm. you're like, that person is ubiquitous to me, and you know, the films that I grew up watching. And yeah, sadly passed away at 62.
1: Yeah, the crazy young and like a really talented guy, kind of similar to like John Polito, you know, mm. it's really, it hits hard because he's someone who worked a hell of a lot <laughs> and was just around all the time. Uh, and I, I'll always look fondly on the fact that he did uh, uh, Do the Right Thing in 1989 and then he was in Sister Act in 1990. <laughs> and those two roles could not be more different <laughs> to go from like a guy walking around uh, red hook with a boombox and you know doing the whole love and hate speech to the camera and everything and then being kind of like a kind of just kind of genial cop <laughs> helping Whoopi goldberg in sister act is like that's range <laughs> that's that's incredible range especially because the two characters seem about 20 years different in age despite the fact the films were shot at more or less the same time mm. uh, And he was also like a fun presence in the Spider-Man films, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Uh, So he was just, like you say, he's just someone who was ubiquitous and just showed up in stuff all the time. And every time he showed up, uh, you were like, Hey, you know, here's Bill Nunner And he always did really, really great work.
0: Mm, Absolutely. So kind of two incredibly versatile um, and uh, much missed people. This week, we are going to do uh, something we do every year uh, around this time. It's the... uh, Shot reverse shot autumn winter preview episode. Um, so, you know, I know you guys at home can barely contain your indifference to that announcement. <laughs> um, but, you know, we like to kind of keep track on things and what's coming up. And Ed has prepared a delightful list of uh, forthcoming attractions. And we're going to go through them for your benefit. So, get the ball rolling, please, Ed, and tell us what, what we've got uh, ahead of us for the rest of this year.
1: Okay, we're going to start with October because that's the month we're in. Hey, so right? It seems a logical place to start. Mm. Uh, in the kind of the coming weeks, we've got Birth of a Nation, the Nate Parker movie about the Nat Turner uh, slave rebellion in the eighteen hundreds, which is a film that's a little harder to be <laughs> enthusiastic about than it was when it played at Sundance, mm-hmm. uh, just because a lot of allegations of have er- a have emerged around Nate Parker you know, when he was 19, allegedly raping a woman, uh, which is horrible. Uh, and the fallout from it, you know, has been very badly handled by everyone involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the film still had got like very good reviews when it came out in Sundance. People seem a little less, seem a little cooler on it now. in just in the sense that, uh, the boldness of borrowing a title of the most racist movie ever made for your movie about slave rebellion, uh, kind of has worn off people are used to the to that bit of appropriation and uh that the, you know the film by most accounts kind of still suffers from the the, the problems of being like a debut feature from an actor mm-hmm. uh, but i'm still interested to see it because you know it's an interesting story that to be told and uh i think it'll be interesting to see how exactly that transfers onto the screen mm,
0: yeah it is interesting to see a film fall. Um, kind of fairly rapidly because as soon as that premiered at Sundance, that was being talked up as you know Oscar contender. And I don't know whether I thought it came out much later. I don't know. They shifted it forward.
1: Uh, I'm not sure if it's moved at all, but yeah, it kind it does seem early in the early in the running order, doesn't it? Mm, for a, yeah. for a, an Oscar contender, usually, if you're opening a film in October, you're either Really confident that it's going to be make a huge splash that everyone will keep talking about it, or you just kind of want to get it out there and hope for the best.
0: Mm, yeah, this yeah. seems
1: more of the second uh, op- uh, option at this point.
0: More of the latter. Yeah. Um. What else have we got coming very shortly?
1: Uh, we've also got kind of more in the kind of the thriller, less um, awards contendery vein. Although you never know. Uh, we've got Girl on the Train, starring Emily Blunt. Based on the wildly successful novel, uh, compared often to *Gone Girl*, in that it's a mystery that about you know a possible death and you know this unreliable central figure being investigated. This in this case being Emily Blunt instead of uh, instead of Ben Affleck, mm-hmm. and uh, the trailers for it look very good. I haven't read the book, but yeah, everyone says that it's really fun. Uh, it's directed by Tate Taylor, who I think did *The Help*, so he's kind of a kind of a dab hand at kind of middle brow fare Uh, but it has got a really really solid cast Uh, I'm most excited by the fact that Alison Janney seems to be playing the detective interview uh, investigating it and uh, I love Alison Janney I think she's an unbelievably great actress and uh, I'm always excited to see her kind of get prominent roles
0: Mm, I'm always um I mean it as a credo This is foolhardy because, you know, it seems to be I'm tarring everything with the same brush. But I'm always very wary of books I see advertised in train stations.
1: Right. Yeah. And that is probably uh, fair.
0: That's (laughs) that's one of them that I always see there. So I instantly just kind of like recoil from it because I I kind of have I mean, and the comparisons to Gone Girl don't particularly enthuse me because that Mm -hmm. I found that to be a very problematic film
1: right sure
0: um even though some of its uh, pulpier elements were kind of enjoyable um there was also kind of like a really misogynist undercurrent i think it's fair to say um that i found kind of it didn't sit particularly well with me and yeah um i'm yeah i mean I'm, i'm probably gonna see it um i do like emily blunt she seems to be Kind of flavor of the month, I guess. At the moment, she's she's kind of destined for great things, having hovered around the uh, the periphery for a while.
1: Yeah, although I'm always slightly disappointed when she's doing an American accent. Right. She's got a, she's got a lovely British accent. And, mm. like, it was great seeing her get to use it in things like Devil's Where's Prada or Edge of Tomorrow, two very similar films. Mm. Um, but you know, like I always kind of find it. I mean, she's good at it. I mean, she's not as bad as say sophie turner's american accent in x-men apocalypse which uh i mean there's a lot of things wrong with that film but her american accent is one of the worst uh but yeah she she makes for a good lead uh, as far as Gone Girl goes i really liked Gone Girl, but i view it as more misanthropic than misogynist uh i think it hates both genders <laughs> right uh, okay um but that may be just because uh i read the book before seeing the film and the book is very much uh, more more concerned with making the Ben Affleck character out to be awful than the uh, oh what's her name <laughs> who was nominated for an Oscar for uh, Rosamund Pike. That's right. Other than the Rosamund Pike perspective, but um, yeah, I think the f- the film I think probably does lean a little more heavily on the Affleck perspective than on hers. Mm. Uh, but I I still think that that's really good, A uh, really really solid thriller in general. Um, I just think the comparison mainly is if you watch it, it does seem. if you watch the trailer for The Girl on the Train, they do seem to have stolen David Finch's entire aesthetic. Mm. Uh, as if they've just gone, oh, everyone says this book is the next Gone Girl. Let's just make everything kind of yellow. <laughs> yellow and dark greens. An interesting bit of thievery mm. on their part.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, what else we got?
1: We've got Certain Women, which is the new film by Kelly Reichardt, who uh, I'm a big fan of. She previously directed things like Night Moves, not that one. the uh, um, Wendy and Lucy, which is a movie that's uh, really hard to watch if you're a dog person. Uh, nothing bad happens to the dog, it's just really upsetting to see someone separated from their dog. Uh, Old Joy, which mm. is a, a really great examination of kind of a crumbling friendship. Um, what else? Uh, uh, River of Grass, which is a... a uh, yeah river grass which is like the most florida movie ever made and i really recommend people uh, watching that one and she's just a really great indie filmmaker who's made a lot of uh, really interesting movies and this one sounds to be uh sounds like it's going to be like one of her best from all of the reviews that have come out so far it's a triptych of essentially shorts all the following different women uh one of which uh is uh, stars Kristen stewart who i'm always a fan of uh, particularly her, you know, her post twilight work. I think she's turned into a really interesting actress. Uh, one of which stars Michelle Williams, who's kind of uh, been a collaborator of Kelly Reicharts in the past. And uh, it seems to be, you know, by by all accounts, kind of a very poetic look at the lives of these different women, all set in kind of the Portland or the the Pacific Northwest area uh, and uh, you know in terms of indie cinema she's one of the most exciting people working today so i'm really excited to see that one
0: um she did uh mink's cut off as well is that her
1: that's right yeah i yeah. was trying to remember the other one that one's a great movie
0: um but do you think that uh, someone like kelly reichardt who has been um kind of plugging away i guess um in that kind of indie furrow uh, is due a kind of a big crossover hit and maybe something to get some awards recognition
1: I think so. Yeah, she definitely deserves to be um kind of a not necessarily a household name, but certainly a kind of a household name in cinephiles households. I <laughs> feel like uh I kind of feel like she is bubbling under that. The Meek's Cutoff seemed to be the film that got everyone really excited. Night Moves, you know, some people really liked, but most people didn't seem that enthusiastic about um I feel like this one feels like it could be the one that really pushes her over uh from being in this kind of uh i don't know noah barmbaki territory to like more w- wit stillman level you know mm. i mean that, that if we're talking about kind of american auteurs who people maybe know <laughs> uh but I, I i hope that she kind of does because i i think she's she's a really fantastic filmmaker
0: mm, me too
1: uh next up we've got uh, entirely the other end of things jack reacher never go back
0: i saw the first one that had yep. Werner herzog have we got another kind of have we got like reina Werner fassbender as <laughs> as a villain in this one or
1: <laughs> reina Werner fassbender's corpse just mm. kind of rolling around on the stage uh no it's takashi mike no that would be <laughs> amazing though that would be uh, good i I don't think that there is a kind of a a wonderful tour in it Uh, but that's partly because this one instead of being done by Christopher McQuarrie is being directed by Ed Zwick who is a little more pedestrian but uh, so there may not be the same kind of offbeat sense of humour that drove it but based on the trailers uh, it looks like it's going to deliver in Tom Cruise uh, explaining to people how terrible things are going to happen to them and those terrible things happening to them instantly Mm. which seems to be Jack Reacher's kind of uh, modus operandi.
0: Mm. Then yeah, uh that also falls into my category of uh, books advertising train stations. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I might give it a wide berth.
1: Yeah, I'm suspicious of more of book series that have got like 30 installments. Mm, and like I mean, they're, they're also... not
0: they're not written by the original author. They they're like their name is big and then it like, like with the intern who kind of like knocked it. like those James Patterson books that the the fucking cleaner writes on their lunch break. <laughs>
1: Yeah, although I think Lee Child still writes all of them, and by all accounts they're they're like really good, as if like really silly and pulpy. Um, but yeah, I I think I'll, I'll probably go and see it just because I really enjoyed the first one, and you know Tom Cruise has a lot of goodwill based on his kind of his more recent work. He seems to pick interesting projects, mm. uh, and I just I just admire his willingness to kind of overlook the fact he's. Completely not the right person to play that part. Insisting that it's going to be like his second franchise that he's going to keep doing well into his fifties. Yeah, fair uh, play to him. Uh, next up, we have got the Handmaiden, which is the new Chanwick Park movie.
0: Oh, uh, we like we like him, don't we?
1: Yes. After coming over to these shores to do Stoker, he's returned to Korea. Although he's adapting a Sarah Waters novel, so there's probably a lot of kinky sex in it. And there is based on the trailer. Uh, it looks like it's going to be crazy. Like the camera moves in particular of Vintage Chambord Park, they are uh, very expressive and very sudden, and uh, everything about it suggests that it's going to be a kind of operatic, gothic, violent, incredibly sexual uh, psycho thriller. Because
0: mm, uh, Stoker his last film.
1: Yeah, that was the that was his most recent one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was great, wasn't it?
1: It was, and this seems to be on the same vein, but I think probably because uh, it's back in South Korea, and I think he probably control commands bigger budgets there than he does in the US, uh, it looks a lot more elaborate. Right. Uh, okay. Which is great. Uh, so I'm very excited to see that. Also got Moonlight, which is the new movie from the director Barry Jenkins, who previously had only directed a movie called Medicine for Melancholy which came out about 10 years ago and co-starred Wyatt Cenac. was a kind of a before sunrise kind of mumblecore movie, uh, which is really, really good, really funny, interesting movie. Uh, and this is, uh, a, again, a triptych. Uh, it's a look at the life of a gay black man at different periods in his life, from childhood through to kind of uh, adulthood. Uh, the trailer is very kind of... Uh, Uh, very kind of stirring and very kind of moving Uh, all the reviews of it coming from all the film festivals say that it's uh, one to watch it's going to something of a masterpiece Uh, and I'm just really excited that Barry Jenkins gets to make another movie because uh, he was one of those guys who made a movie that got a lot of buzz and seemed to get a fair bit of attention and then just nothing happened for a really long time
0: Mm. yeah I always kind of wonder what they do like we've talked before about kind of by people who have kind of made them and then disappeared. You talked about Ballast, the film that I'm a huge fan mm. of, made by, you know, an old ex-special effects artist who, uh, you know, made this really kind of distinct and, and, and kind of vibrant debut and then just kind of has been complete silence since. I kind of wonder where the fuck these people are. What are they doing? Like, you know, put your finger out.
1: Yeah, I think it's easier to do have that sort of a career in the US in that you can always have like projects on the go. Mm. So you can always have money just because you've got a script that someone is developing that may not end up being made. Uh as opposed to like in the UK where like if you're the guy who made um skeletons. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Nick yeah, Whitfield. Like, yeah, Nick Whitfield. If you if you've made skeletons and uh you don't have another project lined up, there's not really much you can do. Mm. you just have to you know take a job doing something else that's probably not film related yeah uh, we're not we're not so good at kind of providing a space for artists to kind of do other work while they try and make a, a, a project go
0: mm. damn straight
1: one of the many things that's wrong with the british film industry as we've talked about many times on this show mm. uh, next up we've got a movie that everyone is raving about and which uh, if people watch the trailer looks like a lot of fun called the love witch Mm -hmm. which is a kind of pastiche of 60s uh, horror movies. Uh, In this case, you know, kind of supernatural witchcraft related. It nails the look. It's got a wonderful kind of warm, like 16, 35 millimeter look. Uh, It has uh, this kind of very campy tone to it. Uh, And it looks like a perfect kind of blend of, of homage and, you know, its own thing, you know, it's taking the idea of kind of a witch going after men in the 1960s and uh, treating it pretty straight-faced as, you know, kind of a uh, like a slightly more serious version of like a black dynamite where you get the look of the thing perfect, uh, but maybe uh, treating it with kind of a more kind of sly arch sensibility.
0: Mm, it's always hard um to kind of pull that off isn't it because i mean we've had this discussion haven't we with the success of stranger things Um mm. that you know it nails all the references and and the, the the kind of look and the feel so well that it would be very empty for that just to be a, a hollow husk of a thing that is, is you know it's all uh all mouth and no trousers as it were but the love which does seem to be garnering um Quite a lot of positive praise, um, which is, is not just died off after the festival circuit, it has kept going,
1: yeah. Uh, and I think I do recommend people watch that trailer. That and The Handmaiden are probably two of my favorite trailers of the year so far. Mm. And all oh, last in October, it's not going to be a good film, it looks terrible. But uh, Inferno, the latest Dan Brown adaptation from the Tom Hanks and Ron Howard team, which, um, looks insane from the trailers uh i don't know if you follow the plot but it's to do with stopping a virus that's gonna wipe out the world and which also has people thinking that tom hanks stole the thing that's going to and the virus and like he's looking at himself on a, a cctv screen and it's like is that you uh and it looks mad it looks absolutely bonkers and i kind of it, the the trailer made me want to watch it more than anything else just because it looked so daft that it seems like it could be really fun to watch and just kind of think why is this being made why is what ron howard wasting his capital on this
0: mm, yeah i mean like who goes to see the i mean i i've made my feelings about uh films based on books based on <laughs> the UC advertising train stations it's a um, recurring theme so far. it is it's like That's it's like 50% of the films we have talked about are uh, <laughs> you know adapted from this pigswill um but like who's seeing this like i mean whose favorite film is the da vinci code is no one
1: what the fuck yeah it's um i i've no idea why there's three of these films mm. i mean i understand i understand why there's two of them because the first one made money The second one was less successful and I don't know why uh, we've got a third one ten years after the first one came out, but here we are, and I think the only thing we can hope is that they are uh, enjoyably bad.
0: Mm, Yes, Uh,
1: yes. Although the first one didn't even achieve that, it was just really boring. Mm. Um, Apart from the moment when Tom Hanks says, you know, I've got to get to a library, and then they hopped on a bus. Mm. Which was just just funny because it's like a, it's almost like a deconstruction of of the entire notion of a thriller. Mm. Um, okay, so we're in November now, and starting off with Doctor Strange slash Marvel's Doctor Strange, um, mm. which uh, I'm guardedly excited about. As I am with all Marvel movies, they all kind of a little samey. I'm not entirely sold on Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, his American accents are all terrible. They mm-hmm. have always been terrible. This one, uh, he sounds like House and it's <sighs> very distracting that <laughs> he seems to be doing a Hugh Laurie in House impression. Um, but I like Scott Derrickson. I think he's an interesting director. He's He's got a horror background, so you would kind of hope that he could bring some sort of edge to it. Tilda Swinton's great, even though her being cast as a Tibetan character is obviously deeply, deeply troubling uh, and kind of, you know, really kind of... Uh, uh uh, problematic because on the one hand it's like great tilda swinton's in a movie oh she took a role from someone (laughs) from you know we could have got an asian actor in to play with uh but you know it could be it could be interesting the trailers suggest that it's going to be because of the whole metaphysical aspect of his powers and the fact that he kind of draws power from different dimensions it could be a little more visually exciting than you know what the russo brothers have been doing uh which you know could be could be quite exciting but uh, and the last time marvel had a movie that wasn't directly tied into the kind of the main uh, MCU stuff you had ant-man which was a lot of fun uh so i don't have high hopes because uh, you know the the marvel movies have a kind of a, a low ceiling for quality uh they're very rarely great but it could still be fun
0: mm yeah, they're always good and they're just not something to get hugely excited about I think the, the cast is pretty awesome. Benedict Wong and Asia um, Ejiofor. Yeah. Uh, is I mean, that's a pretty decent cast. Um, straight off the bat, the trailer kind of looked interesting. But uh, I, I'm just kind of like not sold on Doctor Strange, just mm. like as a character. But then, you know, Marvel, for all their faults and how uh, they do seem to be churning out films that are entertaining yet unmemorable um, with the exception of, you know, things like Guardians of the Galaxy. But what worries me is that, um, well, no, what not what worries me is, you know, they they do seem to be able to pull it out of the back. They will probably make Doctor Strange this kind of character that no one really knows a great deal about. They will probably make it palatable, interesting enough to pass, you know, an hour and 45 minutes, which is starting to become a bit of a growing frustration with me and Marvel. Mm. Because, I yeah. mean, like Civil War, it did exactly that. And then but by the end, I was like... I'm actually, for the first time, having seen a Marvel film, a little bit unsatisfied.
1: Yeah, uh, I do kind of wonder if their strength going forward will be just like the origin stories, mm-hmm. because like when you're telling a new story and introducing a new character, you don't have to get bogged down in like the world building stuff, and that's kind of what Civil War got dragged down by. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still it's still fun because you get to see all of these actors that you like being assembled, but. Like with, with Doctor Strange in particular, when you say, oh, we've got, it's got Benedict Cumberbatch, it's got Stuart El for Benedict Wong, Tilda Swinton. It's like, great, put them in a movie that costs $10 million, mm. and I'd probably really like it, but because you're putting them all in a, in a superhero blockbuster, uh, it's probably not going to be as exciting to me as if you were like, I don't know, in a Jim Jarmusch movie or something.
0: Mm. Could this be the only film in memory with two of the lead casts uh, going by the name Benedict?
1: Uh Almost certainly, at least not for another twenty years when all of the benedicts who have been who have kind of been born in the last five years start appearing in movies.
0: Mm, I wonder if Dirt Benedict's gonna turn up in it um, <laughs> that would really make it for me. Do you think it could be We've had this conversation a lot um could it be the Marvel slip up
1: uh I think they all can be <laughs> like <laughs> they all seem to have that possibility, but for whatever reason the uh you know kind of quality accountants <laughs> that they seem to have. Kind of shepherding all the films through, always seem to be able to just nudge them over the right side of good. Mm-hmm. You know, they never they never let anyone get too crazy, yeah. but uh, they never let them get like too bad. At least not since um, their early kind of missteps with like the second Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. Everything since then has been kind of straight down the middle.
0: Mm. Yes, yes, uh, very, very it's very conservative movie making, isn't it? And I think there was a a video that went viral a few weeks ago that was kind of like talking about, you know, can you hum any of the themes from any of the Avengers films? And the the kind of point they were making, or any of the Marvel films, sorry. And the point they were making is that um, the kind of the practice of putting temporary scores over films um, is, you know, very common. And then a composer will come in and kind of, you know, do their own thing or whatever. But in the Marvel films, they bring in, you know the composer will try and recreate the temporary scores like almost literally so you get very effective it's a music in the short term but something that has no long-term um kind of recognition in your brain and that's kind of how i feel their films are going
1: yeah i mean that's the latest uh every frame of painting isn't it
0: is that the one is that what it is yeah this is yeah that was me listeners recounting something that someone had told me without having seen it <laughs> that was that's exactly what i did
1: uh, yeah, but that's that's great, and I think particularly uh, it's very funny. There's a section in the middle of that video, um, which by Tony Zhao, who people don't know, he's he's great. He does amazing video essays about people like Edgar Wright and Jackie Chan, you know, doing all these things about uh, visual comedy and editing, and and it's wonderful. Uh, but he did, yeah, he did this thing where he talked about temp tracks and things like that. And there's a section where they just play like, oh, here's a clip from Thor, and here's the temp track they use, which is like something from. Uh, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen and then they play the same thing with the music they actually used and it's hilarious just how obviously they've just copied this kind of anonymous bit of music from another movie Uh, and it's also like there's also some really good interviews with people like Danny Elfman who would talk about how heartbreaking it is for a composer that you get brought in and they basically say yeah just do this uninspired shit Mm. (laughs) and don't kind of do anything distinctive like give it a theme or personality Uh, yeah it's very sad Um, but yeah uh, um, that aside we'll go on to the next film Mm. Uh, the next film I have on my list is Hacksaw Ridge Mm. Uh, the movie from the director of Braveheart as he is uh, billed in the trailer Uh, (laughs) not wanting Mm. to say his name, which, of course, is Mel Gibson.
0: Yeah, because you don't want to say from the guy who really doesn't hate Jews. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, like, there, there's a few... I mean, let's be honest. Mel Gibson uh, has uh, kind of like a, a, a problem <laughs> with... I mean, personally, but also uh, he's kind of perhaps... Talk about falling stock. You know, that mm. guy, he went from, you know, Oscars to... You know, what you know, what are you talking about, sugar tits in, you know, a very short <laughs> amount of time. And yeah, you know, that guy has been kind of like unt- I mean he's he's turned up in like the, the expendables and stuff, hasn't he? Is good, you know, in a way yeah. kind of trying to reintegrate himself and now he appears to have directed a very good war film. Um but I don't know how yeah. much that's gonna be tempered by the fact that he, you know, is a bit of a bell end.
1: Yeah, I mean I I'm He's definitely one of those people where you really have to separate the work from the artist because I really love Apocalypto. Mm -hmm. I I think that's an absolutely mad movie, uh, but it's really, really, really fun. And he did a really great job on that. Uh, I think like Passion of the Christ, even though I don't think it's particularly good, it's uh, an interesting snapshot into how his mind works. (laughs) Um, And I I do think that he is a kind of an interesting filmmaker. And by all accounts, you know, this movie which stars andrew garfield and is about uh, a real life um soldier in i believe world war one who was a pacifist and who refused to carry a weapon and so he went on to the battlefield with nothing to defend himself or to uh, attack people with uh and kind of became a great hero and the trailer is like you know very stirring and the early word is that it's a really great war film and it's it's kind of what you would want if you if you um wanted kind of a super bloody version of sergeant york uh, mm. which everyone has been asking for for years that's the top of every survey of what movie would you most want to see um but i'm i'm quite excited about it but at the same time yeah it's very hard to overlook the fact that mel gibson has said and done some pretty horrible things no. um, admittedly they were quite a while ago and it may have been that he was going through like a particularly troubled point in his life or whatever but it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, Erase the fact that he said some terrible things, uh, which would be very entertaining to listen to if they weren't being said to a real person. Mm. Uh, yeah. Some of those... Like, some of his rants, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, that he left on his, I believe, his, his girlfriend's uh, answering machine, like, they're up there with, like, the Buddy Rich tapes and just inventive insulting, but they are really horrible <laughs> and they directed at a real person who fed who feared for their life. Uh, so, yeah, he's, yeah. He's a, he's a like, we'll go back to that word. He's a problematic person. Mm, yeah. Pro- I mean, problematic
0: is a very interesting term and it seems to be used a lot nowadays. And it seems to exclusively mean, um, I like something by someone who's an asshole.
1: <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> that is exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to say that Andrew Garfield plays a soldier who goes to, uh, refuses to carry a gun and goes to war exclusively armed with a hacksaw. Um, and he can just that do you can just do little bits of DIY <laughs> around the place, <laughs> um, minor repairs, those kind of things. Um, but no, yeah, I mean the word is good on that. I mean, I'm not a fan of Mel Gibson's films uh, in particular. Uh, yeah, Braveheart is is a real piece of shit. Um, yeah, it's terrible. That, that is an awful film, um, and I you know dislike it with with kind of an intensity that I can't really go into. That seems to be. Going down pretty well. There's someone else in it as well, isn't it? Andrew Garfield, who's like a big actor.
1: It's probably got everyone in it.
0: Uh, Jim Caviezel, <laughs> probably. He seems to be uh, Mel Gibson's go-to guy. Um, I don't know who it is, but you know, maybe we'll never know. Um, May
1: or maybe we'll know right now.
0: Oh, with the magic of internet technology.
1: Uh, it's not Sam Worthington you're thinking of. He's not a big name.
0: Joe Joe Courtney. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Hugo Weaving, Vince Vaughan, fresh off of uh, True Detective Season 2, his triumphant turn in True Detective Season 2. Uh, I mean, those are the only really big names.
0: Oh, fuck. I mean, I mean we're we struck. You know, they're not big names, are they? Um... I mean,
1: Vince Vaughn being in a serious movie is kind of a big thing. Yeah. I imagine he'll probably be there to. Chew someone out in a kind of a motor mouth way you know, in a, in a, in one scene.
0: He probably thought it was he thought Axel Ridge was probably like a like a follow up to Drillbit Taylor, um, <laughs> and just a kind of tool based comedies. <laughs> what the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> move on, move on to the next film, please, Ed. Please, yeah, my insanity.
1: Uh, the next film is Loving, directed by Jeff Nichols, starring Joel Edgerton and Ruth Nager about the uh, Supreme Court case that uh, ended uh, kind of anti-miscegenation laws in America, and you know made it possible for interracial marriage to occur. Uh, it's uh, apparently a weepy in a big way. You know, people have been talking about having a really strong emotional response to the trailer. Uh, Jeff Nichols is, you know, he's Backing the thousand for me, he's done a lot of great work. Although I still haven't seen Midnight Special, um but he's he's a, a, a filmmaker I'm hugely excited about, uh, and that uh, you know those two actors, Joel Edgerton's kind of a very solid workman like actor who can do great things. Ruth nager's great; uh, she was wonderful in Preacher, and she's she's done kind of great work in other films and uh, TV stuff. Uh, and I think probably Michael Shannon's in there somewhere, <laughs> No. most <laughs> likely, mm. uh, and also Nick Kroll, weirdly enough. Uh, isn't it he's in the trailer and that's I think his presence in the trailer is the only reason why I didn't choke up because I was just like what what the hell is Bobby Bottle service doing in this
0: the douche um <laughs> yeah there's no way to bring a serious film down about kind of you know civil rights struggles than by putting Nick Kroll in it um <laughs> um yeah I can't quite conceive of I mean maybe it'll be like uh was it when Taron Killam was in <laughs> 12 years a slave
1: yeah, the most distracting bit of casting in, in any kind of best picture nominated movie. Because mm. uh, whenever he shows up, he's kind of like, man, the sketch has gone dark, hasn't it?
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really has. Um <laughs> Yeah. What else have we got?
1: We've got Arrival, which is the new movie from Denis Villanueva, who, uh, you know, previously directed Prisoners, which was terrible. Sicario, which was slightly better, but still bad. Enemy, which people like, even though it's not a good movie. I feel like with him, uh, I'm very much like I'm Charlie Brown and he is Lucy with the football. Because every time he has a film coming out, I look at the trailer and think, oh, that looks really good. And every time I go watch it, I come away thinking, this is awful. I don't know why I get excited for this guy's movies. Um, But this one looks good, because all of his films always do. Uh, It's a (laughs) sci-fi movie starring Amy Adams. Aliens come to worth, and uh, she is the one who is kind of tasked with trying to figure out how to communicate with them she's some kind of like ethnolinguist and she's trying to work out how to communicate with them and to figure out do they come in peace are they going to murderers is there a way for us to kind of avoid being horribly wiped out the only word is good but the only word is always good on his movies and i end up never liking them but you know it does look fantastic he's a good visual stylist and uh the the scale of it is really interesting and also you know for a a big budget sci-fi movie to be driven by what seems to be kind of an interesting concept. Uh, you know, essentially taking, Hey, what if the last 10 minutes of close encounter, the work of the third kind was a movie. Uh, it was a movie in its entire right. Uh, it is interesting. Um, although when I just described it like that, it also just sounded like interstellar, a film. I really hated. So maybe it'll be bad.
0: Mm. Can I just say that ethnolinguist, wasn't he in a tropical quest?
1: Yeah, he did the music for Luke Cage.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Like, you just went through that whole thing and all I could think of was that stupid fucking joke. I've not seen any of this guy's films, but you seem to be the person I know that has the biggest problem with this guy. He's doing the Blade (laughs) Runner remake, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everyone else seems to be kind of either hot or kind of like, you know, in between on them. You just, yeah, you seem to not like this guy at all. I'm starting to think it's personal.
1: (sighs) Yeah, he ran over my dog. No, um... I don't know why. I think it's. I think my problem is, he is formally amazing. All of his films always look great. He's got a great eye uh, for composition. He's got a great grasp of tone. But like *Prisoners*, which is this kind of story about these kids. This, these kids go missing, and the family are like investigating it. And Hugh Jackman thinks that Paul Dano does it, so he locks him up and tortures him. And it's this really pulpy story that he treats like with such deadly seriousness and and as a kind of a the most ham-fisted allegory for the war on terror you'll ever see. Uh, and it, all of his films kind of have this superficial to me. They all have this superficial level of quality that once you get past it like even like an inch past the surface it's clear that there's nothing there. Mm. Uh, and that's the case of all of his movies. They all for me are just these kind of like hollow, they're just these kind of shell games where like the surface level is so brilliant that they distract from the fact that there's nothing inside. Mm. Uh, and, and I th- I think the fact that it, it's just the, the sense for me that there's such wasted potential there. He's clearly a guy with talent that just, I don't know if he just chooses really bad scripts or he doesn't really have much of an interest in anything other than imagery. Uh, it just feels like he's someone who could be doing much better work than he is.
0: Mm. Oh, so it's a kind of a must-do-better... Um you, you see the potential there, but you you know, you're not buying it so far.
1: Yeah, I'm unduly hard on him because I feel like, oh, this guy could be a really great director if he wasn't just fucking it up.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah. Willfully. <laughs> yeah. Have a word. Come on. Come on. <laughs>
1: I'll have a I'll have a word with his parents. Yeah. We'll get him in for for parent teacher and I. Next up, uh a film which I'm still impressed has kept this title, I'm certain it would get changed. Billy Lynn's Long Half-Time Walk the latest Ang Lee movie shot at a thousand frames per second or whatever it was or like 120 frames per second. Uh, a story about a kind of Iraq war veteran that explores the uh, intersection between, you know, the experiences and the traumas of going out and fighting in the war. Maybe it's Afghanistan. It's one of the two wars mm-hmm. um, and coming back and then being thrust into the limelight and what it means to be patriotic and to be exploited by the army or the kind of the entertainment, uh, world uh, the trailer looks really really great it's got a, a kind of a, a wonderful cast of supporting players I think uh, Steve Martin is in it as what looks like a very kind of serious sleazy character uh, Kristen Stewart is in it again I'm a you know, big fan of hers I'm excited for anything she does uh, I think that she is uh, I think that the film looks good uh, and I have a lot of faith in Ang Lee you know even when his films aren't good they're at least interesting uh, uh, but this one uh, apart from like the, the frame rate thing, which, uh, you know, when you do high frame rate stuff, it just ends up looking like a soap opera. That stuff could kind of hurt it on a big screen. Apart from that, uh, it looks like it could be really interesting to me. Mm, who plays the titular character? A newcomer whose name I will look up right now.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I don't, I'm not interested if it's not.
1: Uh... <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy Ray Cyrus, <laughs> yeah. The guy's name is uh, Joe Alwyn. Oh, L W Y N, so clearly of Welsh extraction.
0: Um, I kind of am very suspicious about this high frame rate stuff. Do you think that um, after the Hobbit debacle of mm. uh, 48 frames per second, is that what it was, wasn't it, 48 frames per second? Like yes, that. it was. Um, uh, Twice as good <laughs> as normal <laughs> normal film. Uh, do you think after the Hobbit... Imagine
1: how bad it must have been when they shot it at 24 frames per second then.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, good God, I can't even imagine that. But do you think that cinemas are going to be queuing up to present uh, Billy Ray Cyrus's halftime walk um, (laughs) at its native in its native frame rate?
1: Probably not. Uh, I think it'll probably be a sort of thing where it'll do kind of gangbusters in IMAX, but maybe not so much in regular theaters. Because, like, I I mean, imagine it's reasonably easy if everything's being projected digitally to just like set it up so to display at 120 frame rates. But uh, you may not get, like when the first Hobbit came out and there was that big um, confusion because they were like, okay, you can watch it in 3D 24, 3D 48, you know, IMAX 48, uh, uh, IMAX 3D 48. And there were like nine different ways you could watch it. Uh, I imagine it would be just like, yeah, you can probably watch it in 120, in IMAX and not anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I can't imagine that most cinemas really would have that much a truck with kind of having to deal with the headache of all of that particularly you know in an era where you have one projectionist running 20 screens
0: mm. yeah all of them showing this one film in, in various frame rates
1: <laughs> yeah uh okay after that we've got fantastic beasts and where to find them the harry potter prequel starring your favorite of mine eddie redmayne yeah the world <laughs> um... the world's
0: biggest fucking ham
1: <laughs> yep uh, the man whose most subtle performance was in Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> yeah, uh, it looks for fine. I mean, it's David Yates who directed the last three or four Harry Potter films, so he obviously understands the world. Uh, it's I like the idea of taking the, the the world of Harry Potter and expanding it, and saying, okay, we're going to go into the past of this world. We're going to go to America. We're going to show you things you haven't seen before. And as a Harry Potter fan, as someone you know, kind of grew up on the books and and liked the films. Uh, that's all very exciting and it, it seems like it could be kind of uh, interesting and compelling it does feature John Voigt, which is a mark against it but other than that uh, and Ezra Miller who's you know Ezra Miller Colin Farrell there's a, like good people in it uh, Ron Perlman <laughs> okay okay this is this is essential cinema now it's got Ron Perlman in it I'll go watch it um, but like you know it's got it's got good people it's got good people involved Uh, I'm not sure how much the Harry Potter universe can sustain itself without Harry Potter, um, because that was the exciting thing, certainly for me, you know, being a bookish 11-, 12-year-old, reading a book about a bookish 11-, 12-year-old who turns out to be uh, the saviour of the world. There was something very enticing about that. There's something that you kind of identify with. Uh, I'm not sure how much that will carry over to, oh, here's a story about a middle-aged guy who goes chasing after dragons and shit. Mm. Um yeah but I I'm I I I'm interested to see how it turns out and I would hope that it would be good uh you know just because um and that you wouldn't end up with another hobbit. Uh prequels do not have a particularly high hit rate.
0: No they don't. I mean I'm as we've we've discussed before I'm fairly uh kind of cold towards the whole Harry Potter business. Um I think that to probably taking it outside of the British public school system would be a good thing. I kind of would be more in, interested in seeing it. But then Eddie Redmayne's in it, and so is the annoying guy from Fanboys, whose name I can't remember. I think that John Voigt could be the saviour if he returns to his anaconda form, um, <laughs> which is basically just leering at the camera. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to be in a film with Eddie Redmayne, the only way you can kind of keep up is by eating the scenery before he does. Um. so yeah I'm kind of curious I'm more excited about it than I was for any of the Harry Potter films uh, mainly because it hasn't got Harry Potter in it
1: mm. uh, and it also has Katherine Waterston in who's like a very exciting young actress from Being sold in like Inherent, Vice, Inherent Vice and uh, Queen of Earth so it's got good people whether or not it ends up being good remains to be seen mm-hmm. uh, next I have a movie that uh, I hadn't heard of until it was mentioned in the AV Club's kind of uh, preview that they ran a few weeks ago Uh, called Edge of Seventeen, which uh, I wasn't sure what it was, but I went and watched the trailer, and the trailer is very entertaining. It's essentially a comedy about kind of a teenage girl whose life starts to fall apart when her best friend starts dating her older brother, uh, and it stars Hayley Steinfeld, who was fantastic in True Grit, uh, like, what was that, six years ago now? Mm. Christ. Um, So, like, she's kind of been waiting she's one of these people who had like a big breakthrough role like very early on uh and uh, was you know nominated for an oscar for it and then hasn't really uh, she's been in things like the pitch perfect movies and uh, begin again so she's kind of been working but she's not had something that's really a particularly strong showcase for her in the, that time uh but this based on the trailer looks super funny and uh, it kind of puts me in mind of like a Heathers or an Easy A or a Mean Girls, you know, a teen movie that has quite a bit of an edge to it. Uh, it's got also people like Kira Sedgwick and Woody Harrelson in it in kind of supporting roles, uh, and it looks it looks super funny. The trailer's really really great, and uh, I'm hoping that you know, because because it seems like every ten years or so we get like a really great teen movie, uh, and uh, this you know hopefully will be the one for this decade.
0: Mm. And does the trailer make good use of the song by Stevie Nicks, Edge of Seventeen?
1: I don't remember if it does. I would be very surprised if it's not included at some point. Otherwise, Mm. it's really weird not to include it in there.
0: Yeah, what's the point? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Okay, and next we've got uh, maybe kind of the biggest film of the year for kind of um, cinephiles, at least, is uh, Manchester by the Sea, the new movie by Kenneth Lonergan. Yay, we like him. We like him. It's a film that has been made and is getting released. uh, Something that he has had trouble with over his last two films. Um, It's uh, by all accounts a masterpiece. uh, Stars Casey Affleck as a a man whose older brother, played by Kyle Chandler, so everyone's going to cry, dies, and so he has to take um, custody of his of his nephew and look after him. And uh, basically, it follows the relationship between those two as they kind of navigate him having to move uh from quincy massachusetts to um where these this guy lived this uh where kyle Chandler lived so that the the son can continue to go to school uh and uh, by all accounts it's kind of emotionally devastating but also super funny which is kind of a, a milieu that kenneth lonergan seems to uh occupy pretty well based on things like uh, you can count on me uh and uh, I'm very excited to see it you know Margaret or, or Margaret I'm not entirely sure which is the correct pronunciation was uh great kind of flawed masterpiece you can count on me is a, a brilliant movie uh and I'm really excited to see him make a movie that a studio supports <laughs> um which would be a novel thing for him
0: mm. but is uh Amazon releasing it am I right in thinking of that or Netflix releasing it
1: uh, Amazon, I believe, are releasing it, yeah. So it'll have... Uh, I I imagine it'll have the same release schedule that their previous uh, originals have had, which things like Love and, Mer- uh, Love and uh, Friendship or Cafe Society or Wiener Dog, where it's like, okay, it gets a cinema release, probably a pretty wide one, plays there, and then, like, three months later, you can stream it. Mm. So uh, it'll probably have the... it Just for the fact that you can watch it on Prime, it'll have the widest release of any of his movies. Um, but hopefully, the strength of the reviews and the kind of the early buzz will allow it to kind of break out in a big way and not suffer the, the fate of like um beasts of no Nation from last year where it's a movie that has all of these kind of oscar caliber um people working on it and gets really good reviews but because it uh, was associated with the streaming service gets completely ignored
0: mm. Is Kyle Chandler carving himself out a niche uh, of being uh, kind of supporting actor in classy Oscar dramas? Like last year, he was in Carol. Um, mm-hmm. uh, then it was before that, King Kong, <laughs> uh, Wolf and, of Wall Street. Wolf the of Classics. Wall Street, obviously. Um, you know he he you know he can. I mean, does he play a, an FBI man in this? Because he's you know he's <laughs> he's, he's he's got a type.
1: Yeah, C- or oh, he was CIA and uh, Zero Dark Thirty.
0: Yeah, you know he's got range. <laughs> CIA, <laughs> FBI. Uh, I'm sure he's played DEA at some point. Oh, um, must have. But yeah, I mean I'm very excited about Manchester by the Sea. Uh, that seems to be one that is universally liked, and I expect it to to be you know up and around there around Oscar time.
1: Uh, yeah, well, yeah, hope you would hope so. Uh, and I also kind of am hopeful for a Casey Affleck comeback because um, there was an article a, a little while ago which was basically talking about how. Uh, his like he directed that Joaquin Phoenix film. Nah. Uh, I'm I'm still here. Was that what it was called?
0: I'm not. I'm not interested. I'm not interested.
1: I'm not interested. I don't care. Uh, yeah. That's what it was called. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he he directed that, and like for a while it seemed like oh this this like complete debacle is going to destroy Joaquin Phoenix's career. But then like a year later, Joaquin Phoenix was in the master and nominated for an Oscar and his career has, you know, it's kind of taken off since then and he's been fine. But Casey Affleck went from like a critically acclaimed turn in stuff like Gone Baby Gone and like he seemed to be building a career for himself to being kind of persona non grata uh, and he's someone who I kind of would hope to see, uh, you know, kind of have success again. Mm. Uh, And and this, by all accounts, seems to be the film that will give him that chance. Mm, I hope so. Uh, Next up we have Nocturnal Animals, which is the new movie from Tom Ford, his follow-up to A Single Man, uh, which uh, looks great from the trailer. Uh, It's mostly notable for me for being a film that casts both Amy Adams and Isla Fisher. So uh, I would like to think that there'll be lots of stuff in there about fractured identity and not being able to tell which actor is playing which on screen, because uh, I have very great difficulty telling those two actresses apart.
0: Mm, is it got also got Jesse Eisenberg and Michael Cera in it, because <laughs> that would be pretty good. I always, I always get Amy Adams and Rachel McAdams confused, but only in a kind of naming sense. Mm. I always forget which one's in which. I'm like, it was Amy Adams in Mean Girls? And et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, my days fly by.
1: <laughs> yeah, or uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Tobey Maguire. Uh, yeah,
0: also interchangeable.
1: Uh, which was why their casting in that terrible Brothers film from like seven or eight years ago was the most interesting part of that movie. Mm. So I'm like, oh yeah, they do look alike. Well done, movie. Mm. Uh, Tom, you're Tom, Tom, You're still terrible.
0: Tom Ford is kind of proving himself... Well, I guess there was an accusation that it was he was going to be a kind of a one and done, but a single man went down kind of so well that it seemed inevitable that he would follow it up. And do you think he might kind of fall victim to second film uh, or difficult second album syndrome? Or, you know, you know, a single man seemed to be the work of a very confident director.
1: Mm. Uh, I think, I would hope to think that he would kind of uh, break out of it, if only because this film feels very... Different, you know, the last mm-hmm. one was based on uh, was it a Christopher Isherwood novel? It was very, cla- it was very kind of prestigey, uh, you know, and and very um, kind of somber, whereas this is more of a thriller and more of a kind of a, a bit pacier. So, at the very least, he seems to be uh, stepping up his game and trying something a bit different. I think if he was just doing uh, a still single man, um, mm-hmm. or uh, if he was just kind of staying in the same area and the same genre he would run the risk of of running out of uh ideas or of just kind of outstaying his welcome because he's trying something you're kind of noticeably different i think there's there's certainly at least room for him to grow as a filmmaker
0: Mm. Mm. yeah and i'm excited to see in which way he grows
1: Mm. Uh, okay next we have moana the latest disney movie which i'm very excited about
0: Mm, It has a pedigree in spades. It is uh, kind of like a fresh uh, tale. It's not based on uh, an existing Disney property, which makes a change. Uh, It's uh, not really based on a particularly well-known kind of fairy tale. Uh, I guess it's kind of delves more into kind of folk history of the kind of Pacific islands. Um, But what's exciting about it is, A, The Rock in uh, Mm -hmm. one of the the kind of the film's biggest roles. And also um, your friend of mine, uh, Lynn manuel Miranda <laughs> is doing the songs um, uh, he of Hamilton fame who we bang on about all the time um, which I mean whilst that may provide you know a great set of songs for the film uh, it also provides uh, his best chance to uh, be an egot
1: oh, or a peegot because he's also got the Pulitzer in there
0: oh god no one's has anyone got a peegot
1: uh, I think there is at least one other Pigot. I don't know off the top of my head who it is, but um, yeah, he's he's definitely going to. Uh, he's it's his best shot of doing it at least in the near future. I mean,
0: I think that he uh, someone needs to come up with um, awards that spell out so he could do Peugeot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because Peacocks—that's not even that's not even a word. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, he's 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 almost there. He's most of the way there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it it looks great. The animation looks stunning. I. You know, not a huge amount has been revealed of the plot, but it looks like it's going to be a little more action-adventury, which I think is kind of in keeping with Disney Animation's recent trends. You know, things like Big Hero Six or or even Tangled to an extent, they kind of have that element to it, uh, and that's yeah you know, very exciting. It's always cool when Disney add a new princess to their roster, uh, and it nice it's nice to see that they're swinging back towards non-white princesses, having done you know Tangled and Frozen in a row. Uh, and moving further away from that kind of period in the '90s when every Disney princess was kind of a a, a cartoon of color, I guess is, is probably the term to describe it. Uh, mm. Even though they may not necessarily have been voiced by people of color, um, but it's very uh, it's it all looks very very exciting. And uh, yeah, it's just cool to see them doing the princess thing, but really pushing the definition of it, not mm. just you know, like you say, not just a typical fairy tale thing and as good as things like Tangled and to a an lesser extent Frozen is, uh, it's nice to see them trying something that feels very bold and new and distinctive.
0: because mm, Zootropolis kind of proved that they can definitely do that.
1: Yeah, they can try something that's nuts uh, <laughs> It can be one of the most successful films of the year against all odds. Uh, okay, last film from November is Rules Don't Apply, Warren Beatty's long-awaited return to cinema, which I don't think many people care about, but it's kind of interesting just the fact that he finally has this film that he's been working on for seemingly five or six years finally coming out.
0: Mm, I saw the trailer or clip from it this week and that was finally me believing it was a thing
1: Mm. because
0: (laughs) uh, all this time I just thought, yeah, okay, sure, he's made a film, but that's not... The case, it's actually, it's actually a real thing, and, and it's got like actors in it, and like old Naren writes in it, and Warren Beatty's got a moustache.
1: Yeah, and he's playing Howard uh, Hughes.
0: Oh, is he? I didn't even pick up on that. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. So, like, oh, do we need another Howard Hughes movie? I'm not sure we do.
1: No, I don't think we necessarily do. I mean, this at least seems different to The Aviator, and it's kind of a comedy, but it's also, it does that thing which. Uh, very rarely works where you're kind of saying okay here's this like love story period love story and here's a famous person off in the background to kind of add a slight bit of interest you know mm. where they're kind of like oh you know there's these two fictional characters and here's Howard Hughes just kind of like uh, kind of pushing them together or whatever uh, and by all accounts seeming a lot more kind of amiable than Howard Hughes ever was in life because by all accounts he was a pretty awful person um but uh, it does look like it could be kind of light and frothy, which is, uh, which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with the film being light and frothy. But it's, it's also really weird just because uh, Warren Beatty has been trying to make this A film about Howard Hughes since the 70s. Uh, and it's really weird when someone has got a passion project that they've worked on for a really long time and it comes out and it's not like a weighty kind of serious bit of art. It does just kind of come across as like, oh, yeah, this could have been made by anyone. Mm. Um, but it's still it's like it's 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 still weird, cool and weird seeing Warren Beatty in a movie again. You know, it'd be like if Gene Hackman announced his return to cinema in like next week. You know, it's just something that you don't. He, so he's been away for so long that you you kind of forget that he you know was a going concern.
0: Mm. I wonder if uh, Hackman will be because um, I know Tarantino went after Warren Beatty quite hard for Kill Bill, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if Hackman could be uh, tempted out of retirement by Tarantino uh,
1: I think there was talk, I don't know how serious this was or if it was just like a rumour that everyone spread that but there was talk that he was going to come out of retirement for the Wolf of Wall Street oh okay um, but that he would only play like a character who communicates off screen so you wouldn't see him very much but you would hear his voice as kind of like a um, like just kind of like a nice little easter egg uh, which I think would have been fine like i think that obviously wouldn't have been too taxing to him but uh, he seems perfectly happy kind of writing his western novels and uh living on his ranch uh so you know great that's mm. his that's uh that's his prerogative and he seems happy with it
0: mm, more power to you gene
1: okay now we're in december and first up we have la la land the latest movie from damien chazelle a original bigish budget musical starring emma stone and ryan gosling i am very excited for this movie
0: yeah, that sentence um, is. I'm not gonna lie, I'm semi erect uh, <laughs> down to that. I mean, that is that is one hell of a sell. Obviously, Damien, Damien Chazelle did Whiplash, which we were both huge fans of. Um, and when I heard he was doing a musical, I was my interest was instantly peaked. And then that kind of combination, um, and in addition to the trailer, uh, makes it look like an absolute delight. I mean, that was one of the big films coming out of Venice, wasn't it? And that, that I think it might've opened or closed Venice or it was, you know, it was, it was in, in the kind of held in high regard. And the word coming out of that festival was, it was every bit as kind of charming and lovely as, as you kind of think it is.
1: Yeah. And, and it looks, it looks great. Um, there are so few, uh, kind of original musicals being made now, at least on film. There's a couple on television, weirdly enough. Mm. Um, But like uh, he is someone who I think has a real grasp for how to sell, to use music as a kind of a storytelling device and to drive the narrative. Even though uh, all the music in Whiplash is instrumental, he did a fantastic job of making each musical sequence really advance the story in a in a kind of consistent way and play into character. And uh, there's just something you know kind of really exciting about the idea of someone with that. Um, grasp of the musicality of cinema and who is clearly kind of an amazing uh, visual stylist and also um, someone who has just kind of a whip-smart grasp of editing um, be kind of transferring all of those skills to the musical form, which is obviously like something that at its peak is all about the musicality of cinema is all about kind of lavish, ravishing visuals and, you know um, editing to sell the emotion sell the gag depending on, on what the moment uh demands so not only is it uh, something that i'm excited to see just because i love old school kind of romantic hollywood musicals but I, it feels like uh he's the right person to do it
0: mm, yeah and with that one too as a cast um it, i can't fail to kind of clean up
1: mm, yeah exactly uh next up we have jackie which is a movie about the life of Jackie Kennedy slash Jackie Onassis starring Natalie Portman, which is something I wouldn't usually be that excited about because it does sound like kind of Oscar bait nonsense. But it's directed by Pablo Lorraine, who is a kind of Chilean director, uh, directed the movie No with uh, Gabriel uh, Garcia Barnell a few years ago, which was a really uh, kind of fascinating political drama. He also directed a movie called Tony Monero about eight or nine years ago which was about a serial killer obsessed with (laughs) Saturday Night Fever Uh, he's a guy who has a very interesting kind of sensibility and um, everything that people have said about the film so far makes it sound like it's kind of a more impressionistic and opaque take on a biopic uh, which makes it sound a lot more interesting than you know Natalie Portman plays Jackie Kennedy uh, would suggest
0: Mm, yeah, when I first heard about it, I was like, you know, my interest uh, in that was not really that high. Um, and I didn't know that it was the guy who had done No, which is a pretty startling film, um, mm. until you just said it. Um, so I'm in, in, instantly interested beyond the fact that people were talking about it, saying, you know, it's really not what you expect, which is kind of good because it is around this this time that we do get... Uh, the kind of slew of biopics and um, that kind of uh, Oscar bait nonsense,
1: mm. and like biopics is probably my least favourite subgenre of of movies because there's so many mediocre and terrible ones. So, but I am always on the lookout for one that tries something interesting. That's why I really liked Steve Jobs from last year because it actually tried something interesting with the idea of you know movie about a great significant person kind of storyline. Uh, and this one seems to be in a similar vein obviously not the kind of weird free act structure thing but it certainly seems like a more interesting take on, on the material mm. uh, next up we have star wars rogue one or rogue one a star wars story i'm not entirely sure what the actual title will be in that instance um but that looks good looks like a fun film
0: mm, yeah i don't know like star wars Um, No, I am uh, kind of excited for it We've talked a lot about this film So we won't talk about it too much here But um, the one thing we haven't talked about Is that they've recently replaced the composer Which Mm. um, could give credence to the fact That the film might be in trouble um, Because that's not a usual step um, to do Um, I mean, Maybe the schedules have misaligned it So he can't finish it He's got to move on to something else or maybe the film is such a tonal, um, kind of like vomit stream that they can't <laughs> kind of figure out what it is, and they're having to bring someone else in. Um, so yeah, who knows what that's going to be like? I mean, it can't be any worse than the prequels. Mm,
1: what well, well, the guy that they brought in is Michael Giacchino. Yeah, I mean, it's is... not—it's not
0: just any old clown. It's not yeah. like Den- Dennis Waterman they've got into like Hammer <laughs> theme tune. Um, you know, it is a you know bona fide kind of inside out man Do you know what i mean he knows what yeah. he's doing um but uh yeah i mean yeah i mean it, it, i think it's gonna be weird when we actually see it and we're gonna be like well yeah okay obviously we all knew that was in trouble or it'll be like "Ha, nothing to worry about
1: <laughs> yeah it is it's you know i think we've talked about this before in terms of like trouble productions is like no one remembers the troubles as the film ends up working
0: Mm.
1: it's like unless it's like you know apocalypse now where it's like can you believe they made such an amazing movie after everything went terribly wrong uh more the kind of in the more mundane description of a trouble production of like yeah we had to kind of do reshoots and we had to swap producers or we had to kind of recast you know kind of like the stuff that isn't oh people died and the lead had a heart attack mm. um, that, that stuff all kind of gets lost in the wash when the film comes out and they only remember, even films that don't do very well, people don't usually remember the details, they remember the film itself. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I, I also kind of, from a musical perspective, I just kind of find it really interesting to see, A, if they can escape, like, the temp track problem that we talked about. Um, you know, if you can actually have distinctive music or if the temp tracks they'll use will just be music from other Star Wars movies so it'll all feel of a piece. Yeah. Um, or if you'll actually get something distinctive and like uniquely to like Michael Giacchino's aesthetic, because he is someone who's like a really great composer and he does actually write memorable themes. Like the music, the inside out, uh, you know, reduces me to tears. Just thinking about it, the music to up's beautiful. The music he did for the Incredibles is great. Um, his work on lost is also really, really fantastic. Uh, you know, he's, he's kind of one of the greats of the, the modern era, um, certainly in Hollywood. Um, but you wonder how much leeway you have because everyone expects, oh, this is a Star Wars movie. It's got to have Star wars music.
0: Yeah. That, I mean, that is a weird thing, isn't it? That ultimately uh, you can bring in uh, any kind of artist to make a make a Star Wars movie, but to what degree is it just big budget Star Wars fan fiction?
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll find out in December.
0: Mm. Can't we? Uh...
1: Next up is a monster cause a film we've talked about a little bit on the show before so we don't probably need to rehash it too much uh, but it's a film based on a book by Patrick Ness uh, about a young boy whose mother is dying of cancer so he kind of conjures up the image of this giant monster voiced by Liam Neeson who uh, kind of uh, actualizes or represents kind of his the emotional trauma that he's going through. Uh, the trailer looks great. Uh, I know you've read the book and said that it's it's really fantastic. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm very excited to see how how that one turns out.
0: Mm, that is an absolute fucking tearjerker, and and from the people, I think the press screenings have been happening. Uh, kind of, they they are going on at the minute because a lot of people on Twitter that we kind of both follow have kind of said it, and you know, not a dry eye in the house, and. Uh, you know, really kind of has a devastating emotional impact. I read the book, I read it on my honeymoon, Uh, me and my wife uh, kind of read it together and it was, it's pretty brutal. Um, So I can imagine that the film, if it gets anywhere near that will be, um, you know, pretty amazing.
1: Uh, Okay. Next up a film that probably won't be emotionally devastating. uh, Assassin's Creed. Oh shit. Is that actually still happening? Yeah, it's still happening. It's still probably going to feature Michael Fassbender looking very bored.
0: Mm. Is it going to... At any point, is Michael Fassbender going to fall from the top of a, a tower into a hay bale? Uh,
1: yes, I could think so. I think there's probably going to be at least a 30-minute sequence of him just sitting on a bench uh, while the person playing it has like gone off to make um, toast or something. Mm. If, uh, if my experience of watching one of my old housemates play the Assassin's Creed games is anything to go by... Mm. Um, I mean, like, you know, video games, movies, there's not a particularly good track record. Uh, I'm not sure that the Assassin's Creed uh, model necessarily offers that much potential for greatness. Um, it's not like everyone's really super into parkour anymore. Parkour. Uh, and that's, that's essentially what the game is. It's parkour through the ages. Um, <laughs> parkour uh, through the
0: ages. <laughs> that sounds like a really great kind of, like, alt... Uh, kind of indie band like a kind of Yola Tango (laughs) parkour through the ages like architecture in Helsinki (laughs) it's a great band name
1: Uh, or it's like um, a stall at a kind of a history fair that's trying to be especially hip
0: Mm, yeah but failing
1: yeah (laughs) failing miserably Mm. Um, yeah and there's like there's obviously the kind of the Two time streams versions of it, like oh, it's it's Michael Fassbender in the present, looking being connected into a thing that allows him to relive things that his ancestors did as part of this Order of Assassins, and it's this it's this sort of plot line that kind of works in a video game purely because um, it's kind of just this gossamer thread connecting or explaining why you're going around stabbing people and kind of like stalking people and doing stealth missions and things like that. Um, So I'm not really sure. In my mind, it has the exact same problem as all the Hitman movies, well, the two Hitman movies that they've made, which is that something that is exciting to play because you're essentially being told that you have to try and kind of puzzle solve and uh, kind of be actively involved uh, becomes incredibly boring when it's just on screen and it's someone else doing it.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't have any, even though it's Marion Cotillard, Justin Kersel and, and, and Mike, like Michael Fassbender, um, just not interested from the off. Um, if it turns out to be passable, that's probably the best we can hope for, which is mm. perhaps not the uh, the kind of height you set that bar to when you make a film.
1: No. Uh, next up, we have Passengers, the sci-fi movie from Best Director nominee Morton Tildum the man behind The Imitation Game, who apparently is a better director than Ava DuVernay. Mm. Uh, Despite all evidence to the contrary. Um, Most notable for starring Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence uh, and Michael Sheen and kind of the third character and I think it's just those three in the whole movie. Uh, The trailer doesn't look great. looks kind of like uh, someone said, hey, can we make a movie with these two famous people? And then just kind of... Uh, drum something up from a bunch of buzzwords about AI and space and uh, you know, kind of suspended animation or whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I like those three actors a lot. Um, like Morton Tilden kind of bland. <laughs> it doesn't really move the needle live away from me. Um, yeah, it just kind of seems like one of those movies that every either uh everyone will have forgotten in a year or will make a billion dollars in America you know it would kind of be an Avatar style success I think those are the only two ways it can go really for that one
0: mm, I think to pitch it kindly it's uh watch these two attractive people fuck in space I think <laughs> that's kind of how that because it's kind of like a romantic film but set in space yeah. what Michael Sheen is doing that whole time while those two are at it I'm not sure but yeah it's, it looks like uh total fluff um, and even though I like all of those actors, um, I don't like the director. I mean, The Imitation Game is uh, pretty shit by all accounts. Well, and I've seen it, so I can tell you it's terrible. But um, <laughs> these other film we made, Headhunters, I really didn't enjoy. It. Everyone else seemed to enjoy it, um, but I hated it. So kind of, I don't hold out that much
1: hope. Um, Wasn't the kind of the appeal of Headhunters that it was just kind of nuts? Yeah, but it, but it, that it was kind it, of just a wacky thriller and so it's weird that his career since then has been making this stuff that seems really kind of staid and conservative.
0: Mm, he wouldn't have been my first choice from headhunters to do the imitation game. It's mm. kind of like regal adaptation of, you know, a, you know a story that'd probably be quite interesting, you know, in order to beg for Oscars. But yeah, it's, you know, I I I I kind of I think I would fall on the side of that it will be a film that won't be talked about any year, um, mm-hmm. rather than the one that makes a billion dollars.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just like I wouldn't have said that Avatar would have been a success, and you know, it ended up being huge. So I kind of wonder if if the the reviews are even half decent, mm-hmm. if the appeal of those two actors will be will kind of make it into kind of a staggering, surprising success. Um, but yeah, it looks it looks so bland that. Chances are it'll just be like one of those things that no one talks about.
0: It'll be the joy of this year. I didn't even. I. I don't even remember that that happened.
1: Uh, I had actually honestly forgotten that I'd seen it until, mm. uh, until recently. Uh, I still think of it as uh, a series of Jennifer Lawrence gifts, which is essentially <laughs> what it is. It's just like if you want a series of images of Jennifer Lawrence being defiant in the face of men, Joy mm-hmm. is your movie, um, uh, which is fine. Uh, Okay, next up we have uh, Sing, which is the latest movie from Illumination Animation, the people behind Secret Life of Pets and the Despicable Me cinematic universe, uh, which uh, is kind of a jukebox musical about uh, various animals singing songs for a cat talent contest. It looks silly, the reviews have been very kind so far. I'm mainly interested in it just because it's by Garth Jennings, who previously directed Son of Rambo. Mm. Uh, And um, I heard him being interviewed on Adam Buxton's podcast about it about a year ago. uh, And he was talking about how he'd like moved his family to Paris to make this movie and he'd been making it for years and years and years. And then, like, the first trailers came out, and I was like, that's what he moved your family to Paris to make. (laughs) Uh, But, like, the review, the handful of reviews that have come out about it have been very kind. So, it's probably fine. But yeah, it's it's just really really weird when someone's that like like with rules don't apply. Like the idea that this is something where someone uprooted their entire life to make a movie that seems like just kind of pleasant fluff.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's a uh an odd hill to die on, as you say. Uh,
1: and it's also just weird because it's a kids' movie in which they're singing "Baby Got Back" in the trailer, at least. Mm. Uh, and it's just it just reminds me of the joke in Futurama when uh fry discovers that he's incredibly rich because all of the money through compound interest the money he had in his bank account in 1999 has made him like absurdly wealthy uh and at one point he's just sitting in his apartment listening to baby got back and leela says you can't just sit here listening to classical music <laughs> and uh like the fact that baby got back is in a kid's movie just kind of makes me think like yeah like um time marches on we're all uh, you know entropy we're all falling apart mm. uh it's just it's just really weird that we're at a stage now where a song that at one point was thought to be very risqué is being used as kind of a gag in a kids movie in a, kids in a trailer film. for a kid movie yeah okay uh next up we've got Patriots Day which is the second Peter Berg Mark Wahlberg movie of the year after Deepwater Horizon again based on a real life event this time a movie about the Boston Marathon bombing mm. um, uh, I'm I'm not one of those people to kind of say too soon, but too soon. <laughs>
0: it, it, it does feel too soon. I mean, yeah, it it, it, it I don't know. I've, I I mean, it's still going on. I mean, that mm. trial's still happening.
1: Yeah, it's very. It's yeah. It just kind of feels a little bit kind of uh icky and uncomfortable that it's been made, and it also doesn't feel like the sort of story where you can really mine a huge amount of like like, drama and material, I guess. Um, unless you're doing, like, an Altman-esque take where you're looking at all the, the effect on all these different people. Um, but it doesn't seem like the sort of kind of crowd-pleasing-y thing that Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg seem to be aiming for with their other work together. Mm, it,
0: uh, it it feels a little bit... Like, I mean, I'm not really sure where the point of view is going to be. Yeah. Um, it It seems like an odd... Uh, choice to go for because obviously it was a a kind of an incredibly compelling episode a horrifying episode but the kind of the manhunt element i suppose in a in a kind of like procedural fashion would be an interesting film to watch but do we kind of need to will it ever be as interesting as it actually happening
1: Uh, and also i mean like if you compare it to something like united 93 Mm. which is kind of like um, similar in the, you know he's kind of a, a dramatization of the of, of the events of a particularly kind of awful day and a, a particularly awful attack on American soil. Uh like there you were getting kind of an insider's view of your or an imagining of, of you know the last hours in the in the, the um in the lives of the people on board Flight ninety three. Whereas this is like most of it's pretty well known, like everything that happened. It just seems like you're taking events that are in the public domain that people kind of know about and then just having famous people redo them Mm. uh and you kind of and unless you feel like unless they're bringing some sort of particular emotional sensitivity to it or some kind of new insight uh it doesn't fit if it is very hard not to think that it's going to be exploitative and you don't know like there's, there's probably a lot of interesting stuff to be gained from like a retelling of the manhunt and everything but at the same time it was something that played out on the national news and on Twitter and Reddit. Uh, honestly a documentary about like the way in which that um, played out in the online sphere would probably be a lot more interesting than like a recreation of what happened in the real world because that stuff's all kind of known.
0: Mm. Oh, that that already exists as well. It's called the thread. It's oh, it? Uh, a- yeah, the documentary, it's on Netflix. It's all right. Oh. I didn't I didn't know any of that stuff. Um but it was fascinating. Um, yeah, watch it.
1: Okay, and last of all, uh, we have the movie Patterson, which is the latest movie from Jim Jarmusch, starring Adam Driver, who is slowly working his way through all of the kind of 90s auteurs, uh, having previously worked with the Coen brothers, uh, about a poet named Patterson, who's also a bus driver, who lives in Patterson, New Jersey. By all accounts, it's an achingly cool and lo-fi comedy. Uh, so if you have seen a Jim Jarmusch movie, you've seen Patterson. And if you like Jim Jarmusch movies, you'll probably like Patterson.
0: Mm. Are you, did you say Adam Driver plays a driver?
1: Yeah, he plays a bus driver. Yeah. So he's finally living up to his name.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jim Jarmusch, uh, I'm trying to think of what he's done like recently and whether he's in need of, you know, I well, I mean, maybe the fact that I can't think of what he's done. Um, what? Did you only lovers left alive? He did. That was oh, the most recent was. movie. That was good. What was before yeah. that, though?
1: The Limits of Control.
0: That wasn't very good, was it, it from was memory? It was very
1: bad. It was a very bad movie. Um, yeah, he's also got a documentary about the Stooges out this year called, I think, Gimme Danger. Oh, that'd be cool. Which, which looks like it'd be cool. So he's he's got two movies on the go, and uh, they both look very, very interesting, very different. Uh, but yeah, I think you know, Only Lovers Left Alive was really cool. Uh, it was kind of like a... Distillation of his entire aesthetic, which is just people listening to cool music and being dissolute. Uh, so this looks like it's a little more uh, kind of pushing beyond that and kind of more, yeah, you know, obviously not vampires. So it's returning to the the world of the human, um, which is exciting, and it kind of given me the same feel of something like Broken Flowers, where it's recognizably a Jim Jarmusch movie, but it also. Has a vaguely more accessible air to it, mm. uh, and I I do find it interesting when he tries to kind of branch out when he does something like like when he does a genre movie like when he did Dead Man or when he did Ghost Ghost um Ghost Dog, uh you know it's it's always interesting to me to see someone who has such a distinctive and seemingly niche and finite aesthetic and tone uh, tries to kind of broaden out a little bit.
0: Mm. yeah yeah oh, I mean his films are always worth watching even mm-hmm. the ones that don't really work um is that yeah. does that take us all the way up to the end of the year it does so well,
1: it's a packed three months
0: it is um and we've kind of squeezed them all or stretched them all into this uh incredibly long episode um thank you for bearing with us all the way to the end uh but we will cap off the way we normally do with some recommendations what have you got Ed?
1: Uh, well, I obviously have been on a plane a little bit recently, so I watched a couple of movies on the plane over. I have one anti-recommendation, which I always already mentioned, X-Men Apocalypse. Don't watch it. It's really bad. <laughs> um, but I also watched a good movie called Everything is Copy, which is a documentary about the life, work, and death of Nora Ephron, who is a writer-director, most famous for things like Sleepers in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally, uh, You've Got Mail, Heartburn... Uh, and the, the documentary is made by her son or co-directed by her son, Jacob Bernstein, uh, who was her son with Carl Bernstein, obviously, and uh, here the story takes kind of a Citizen Kane approach to her life where it starts with the question of why did a, a writer who spent her whole life turning her experiences into copy, hence the title, um, and kind of put so much of her personal life on the page or on the screen uh remain secretive and silent about the cancer that she had for six years that eventually killed her in 2012 uh which she kept so secret that no one knew about it until literally weeks before she died uh when she was so sick that she couldn't hide it anymore uh and uh the answer to that question is kind of not uh that revelatory uh i think it's the sort of thing where you could kind of you could kind of figure it out as you uh, just you know, through thinking about how people are. But it's a great documentary about her, about her life, and it provides a, a kind of a good engine for discussing the ways in which her life informed her work uh, and for, uh, kind of showcasing it by having famous people like Lena Dunham read excerpts uh, or having people like, you know, Meryl Streep, Spielberg, uh, Tom Hanks talk about working with her, what she was like, going over kind of the painful moments in her life, such as the divorce... Her divorce from Carl Bernstein, which formed the basis for the novel and then film *Heartburn*, uh, and it's just a it's a really really fascinating movie about um about a particular artist, her process, uh, and the various ways in which her life informed her work, her and her work informed her uh, her work informed her life.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Nora Ephron. Um, But always, you know, I've kind of repeatedly said on this podcast that When Harry Met Sally is uh, one of the all time great scripts. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm kind of very, very keen to finally see that film. Um, I'm going to recommend a TV show this week, uh, something that Ed alluded to earlier. Um, I'm going to recommend the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I think we might have mentioned before on the show, but never actually formally recommended. So I'm doing it here so you can watch it. Um, it is uh, centered around uh, the ca- character played by Rachel Bloom, uh, who is uh, kind of an unhappy New Yorker who up sticks and moves across the country to uh, West Covina uh, in California, which is uh, not New York, uh, shall we say? And she mm-hmm. does it on a on a kind of a whim when she runs into her ex boyfriend who she went out with when she was fourteen, fifteen, or sixteen. I can't remember; it's kind of pretty young. Um, and it is a incredibly funny. Um and very very clever show that uh is a is a musical show, um it kind of has uh kind of sung through music uh all the way through all most of the songs written by, uh, Rachel Bloom uh, or it has kind of like musical parodies in it, um which are all kind of like representations of her kind of mental kind of state, I guess and and kind of how she imagines herself dealing with situations or failing to deal with situations. Um, and you know whilst it is incredibly funny as a show uh, it also kind of is uh, pretty rich with pathos I guess um, and uh, kind of confirms Rachel Blue to be probably one of the most likeable people in the world
1: mm. yeah, it's, a, definitely. It's,
0: a, it's an incredible show and uh, the reason I kind of bring it up now um, is I think uh, season one is on Netflix pretty much everywhere um, and season two starts very shortly in America, but uh, Netflix have announced that they're going to be screening the episodes like the next day, um, which they haven't done for something since I think Breaking Bad uh, possibly, um, which is kind of, you know, probably says a lot about how, how good that show is and how well regarded it is.
1: Yeah. And also um, in, in kind of adding to the the fact that it's a really funny show, it's got great music and great performances Uh, It also kind of has a nice line in deconstructing the notion of a romantic comedy and uh, the ideas uh, and the ways in which romantic comedies have shaped people's uh, concepts of what love and relationships are. So it's a very, it's not only very funny, but it's also kind of a very savvy uh, show in kind of a metatextual sense.
0: Mm, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, everybody, that is your lot on you know for this winter-autumn preview that we've uh, kind of put together for your delectation. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, then why not leave us a little review? Uh, you can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook as well. Uh, we'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And goodbye from me.
0: And goodbye from me.